Our sister-in-law's mother works in a center that helps people get back on their feet in Asheville, North Carolina. And Bryce's birth mother was there begging a nurse to adopt him. The nurse, of course, couldn't take the baby. And our sister-in-law's mother was there and said, I know a couple who will take that baby. Two and a half weeks later, Bryce was born. Gregory and this is my wife Rachel. This is our story of struggling with infertility and adoption. Once we came to the point that we realized God was calling us to adopt, we have been struggling with infertility for over seven years. We have seen several specialists and they would get our hopes up by saying do this and do that and you can get pregnant but nothing would work. When you're getting married or even having your premarital counseling, no one says to you, what are you going to do if you can't have kids? It's always, how many do you want and when? No one also tells you how hard infertility is on your marriage. Honestly, there were times our marriage was on the rocks. Infertility makes you feel like a failure, and you want to give up on everything. Keeping our marriage strong was the hardest part of this struggle. If it hadn't been for prayer, communicating, and support from family and friends, we wouldn't have made it through this struggle. It was our very last fertility specialist visit that the doctor told us there was absolutely no hope in getting pregnant. And it was almost like then when he shut the door that we felt like we could breathe. Because we knew then that without a doubt, without a doubt, we were being called to adopt. We had earlier that year started with an agency and had been doing some fundraising and raising money for our adoption. But this being a private adoption, we had no clue how much it would cost. And come to find out, our lawyer was exactly the amount of money we had raised. But he also told us, because of North Carolina adoption laws, we were going to have to stay in North Carolina up to eight weeks. We only ended up having to stay two and a half weeks, but the blessing was an OB nurse we met had also adopted had a cabin that her family owned, and she let us stay there for free. God had provided every little detail for our stay in North Carolina. The day Bryce was born is a day that we'll never forget. Bryce's middle name is Rain, and that's in honor of his birth mother. That's the name she had picked out for him. It rained all day long the day he was born, and at the end of the day there was a rainbow. We felt that was a sign just for us of God's promise. He had not forsaken us. Retrospect, we can now see how God met our needs along the way. From before we even got married, where we had played around with the idea of adopting, till Bryce was born, to even now. We can now see through this struggle how God was working. He grew us closer as a couple. He, he allowed me to build my clientele so that I could go home and work from home. That way I could still be a stay-at-home mom too. He provided exactly the right amount of money and the housing for Bryce's adoption, and he gave us a child that fits us and our family perfectly. And one of the best things of this journey is how our stories are helping other couples that are going through the same thing. And that is an amazing ministry that we are glad God has blessed us with.
for sharing your story with us. I can't look at you or else I'm going to cry. I want you to think uh, with me for a few minutes about a certain word. That word is uh, unsettled. Unsettled. U-N-S-E-T-T-L-E-D. Uh, to call someone or something or a situation or circumstances unsettled means they're unstable, they're uncertain, they're constantly changing, uh, maybe they're, they're, they're fidgety. Uh, unsettled was uh, kind of how the Coxes felt about their family until they come along in this journey of faith. And you heard through this video, piece after piece of the puzzle comes together, God providing as they go along in this journey to make the gospel practical in their home and in their lives. And that sense of feeling settled um, has come. But, but unsettled here is, is a place where a lot of us live, a lot of us have experienced in various forms for, for various reasons. That's kind of where the Coxes felt about this desire in them to extend their family, to be fruitful and multiply in ways that Genesis talks about. That's us doing what God did for us. That's extending the grace of God in his heart for others in our families, in our marriages. They wanted to do that, but, but they couldn't for many years. That's an unsettled feeling. Unsettled brings uh, up lots of thoughts, perhaps images, memories to mind for you. I know it does, does for me. When I think of unsettled, uh, one of the first things I think about is like me right here. I'm unsettled. I'm, I'm dancing. I've got a lot of nervous energy. I'm like preacher ADD boy uh, up here. Some of y'all remember the days where there's this big, huge wooden thing over here, uh, a, a pulpit. That's what it's called. Um, the pulpit was here, and everybody used to say, "You're always dancing. You're always dancing around the pulpit. It, it looks like you're unsettled, like you're like you're fidgety." That's that's kind of me. What does the kind of word unsettled? Uh, what does that connote for you? What does it imply for you? What does it make you think? Of when you think of the word unsettled, maybe an, an uns, unreconciled bank statement, uh, maybe uh, unresolved relationship tension, um, those kinds of things. We've all experienced that at some level. We've all experienced that feeling of being unsettled at some level. Um, it began to be something that wasn't just nervous ADD energy for me about my junior year of high school. Um, I experienced something, nothing fantastic, but it was a, it was a big moment for me because I realized something about my life. Uh, I've shared this before. It's been a couple of years. Some of you may remember this, but um, I was about junior year in high school and I was standing in line at Kroger at the grocery store. And I remember very clearly that the guy in front of me in line and the lady behind the cash register, probably both in about their 50s or 60s, they had this little 30-minute, 30-minute, that would have been annoying, 30-second conversation, 30-second conversation in front of me in line. And they were saying, like, you know, how's your family? How you do? And they obviously knew each other well. They'd grown up together. They'd gone to the same schools together. It was like, for the native Green Countians, it was like the how's mom and them conversation. You know what I'm saying? So that's going on there. And here's why this was significant for me. It was the first time I realized that in my own life, I had this sort of emptiness when it came to feeling like I had a place I call my own. Like there was a place that I called my hometown. Because I went away from that little interaction, just 30 seconds in line at the grocery store, feeling like 
I want that. I want that kind of sense of place that belongs to me. I remember thinking as I walked away that I wanted a hometown Kroger. Like I wanted my own grocery store. I know that sounds weird as I say it, but, but I wanted this sense that this is, this is a place where I belong. They know me. I know them. That's when I began to realize uh, that I had been feeling unsettled in my life for, for quite a long while. Now, don't get me wrong. I grew up in a, a wonderful Christian home, a uh, wonderful Christian home, amazing parents. Hi, Mom and Dad, in case you watch. A very safe, nurturing environment with wonderful parents. But, but we moved a lot when I was a kid. We moved a lot, seven houses, six schools, six cities, and four states by the time I got to high school. So for me, the instability was the instability of place. And for me, the stability had to be the people. For me, the, the people around me had to be the stability and the health that I needed because the places weren't. Have you ever had that kind of feeling of being unsettled? Uh, maybe you're a nervous energy person like me. Uh, you need to be medicated with Ritalin or something like that. Maybe you feel that kind of unsettled. Maybe, maybe it's a deeper level, though. Maybe it's like you've, you're new in town and you feel like a foreigner, like you didn't belong there. The, the locals keep talking about the bypass and you're not sure what they mean. They keep talking about uh, the Bean Barn or Magnavox. And you're like, I know how to get to Walmart. <laughs> like, like that's, that's it for you. Maybe you've walked in the cafeteria, that moment where you walk into the cafeteria and feel like the outsider because you don't know who you're supposed to sit with and, and nobody's there waiting for you, calling you over. That's an unsettled feeling. But listen, I know many of you know this feeling way deeper than what we've talked about so far. Because many of us have experienced broken homes, broken families. If you've been a part of a, a broken home in, in any sense of the term, you understand this unsettled feeling. Maybe you've come up from a, a context of divorce. That's an unsettled feeling. Maybe you uh, grew up in a, in a home where there's an alcoholic or some sort of addiction in the home. And you weren't sure what mood mom and dad, mom or dad might be in when you got home. So you always approached with this sort of fear, this unsettled feeling about, about that because you weren't sure what was going to happen on the other side of that door. Maybe you've experienced abuse on the other side of that door. If you know those kinds of experiences, those kinds of feelings... There's this constant underlying tension of uprootedness. This constant underlying feeling of lacking identity, a sense of self, a sense of place. If you've experienced that, then you know what it's like to be an orphan. If you've experienced that at any level, at any depth, beyond like a 30-second conversation at Kroger or moving a lot as a kid, but like these deeper level kinds of things, then you know some of what it's like to be an orphan. Because, <laughs> friends, an orphan is always longing for home and never getting there. That's an experience most of us won't have and take for granted that we never have to. 
Orphans long for home and never get there. And I'm not just blowing smoke about the exceptions out there. Orphans are all around us. If you know this feeling, then you're experiencing some of what's going on in the lives of literally millions of children in the world today. Literally millions. The facts of the matter show that many millions of orphans have this sense of uprootedness, of being unsettled, of not knowing a home, of not having a father or a mother that cares for them, that lets them know that they're safe, that gives them a sense of self, that tells them that they are loved and that everything's going to be okay. (laughs) Estimates uh, most of the time showed that about 143 million orphans exist in the world today. That's almost half the population of the United States. Could you fathom a country half the size of the United States that is filled with nothing but homeless orphans? In the world today, 30 million have lost a mother. 100 million have lost a father. 13 million have neither. And the cause is many things. It's multifactored. AIDS, war, drugs, uh, poverty, trafficking. Did you know that just because of AIDS, every 14 seconds in the world, there's a child that loses a parent. Every 14 seconds in the world you live in today, a child loses a parent. That statistic goes back to 2000. Closer to home, friends, in the United States, almost half a million, 450,000-ish or so, are in the foster care system. About 125,000, a little more than 25%, are available for adoption today (laughs) in the United States. In Tennessee alone, there are about 8 to 9,000 children in the foster care system at any given time. And around 2,500, 2,500 of those are available and waiting for adoption today. And after children in the foster care system turn 8 years old, the chances that they will be adopted by the time they reach 18 and age out is only 30% from age 8 to 18 are adopted. In the last five years in Tennessee, over 1,600 children have come into the foster care system because of manufacturing meth by their parents alone, and especially in East Tennessee. This is not a pretend problem. (laughs) Though you may feel disconnected from it, it's not a pretend problem. And friends, Christians have a responsibility to do something about orphans. And here's why. Here's why. Because the heart of God is to care for the most vulnerable among us. The heart of God is to care for the most vulnerable among us. And and here's the point that, at least for me, this is what guides where I land on the issue of who qualifies as most vulnerable. Those who are most vulnerable do not live in an environment where the people and the places around them communicate that they have a loving father who wants to spend eternity with them. Those are the people who live in the most vulnerability. 
regardless of place, regardless of material goods, regardless of whether they have a mom or dad, regardless of how much wealth there is, regardless of their resources, the most vulnerable are those who live in an environment where the people and the places around them do not communicate that they have a loving father who wants to spend eternity with them. And how on earth are they going to learn that there's a loving father who wants to spend eternity with them? Through communicating intellectual truths, the theoretical God. Is that how it's going to happen? No. Those are true. <laughs> Those are right thoughts. But thoughts that become action where the most vulnerable are cared for by the people of God is how those vulnerable children will learn that there's a loving God who cares about them. How else do you expect it to happen? Listen, friends, the heart of God is to care for the most vulnerable, to care for children who are unsettled, where emptiness goes way beyond a 30-second conversation at Kroger in high school. These are children who desperately need someone to hold them, to care for them, to communicate safety in a relationship with you that reflects God the Father. And so that's what we're going to see in these scriptures we're looking at today. Uh, the heart of God is, is, is pictured for us in these five things we're going to say about God's heart for orphans. And the first is this. We already read it, Psalm 68. Turn there if you're not there yet. We're going to jump through a number of passages a little bit differently than we normally do. Just paints for us a picture of the heart of God. And the first point we're going to see here is that God's heart is to prepare a home for the orphan. God's heart is to prepare a home for the orphan says this, Psalm 68, 4 through 6. Sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. Now that's a, press pause a second, that's a, a bit of a strange phrase. <laughs> sing, sing to the God who rides through the deserts. That's a hint for us of the reason why he's worthy of praise. He rides through a place where there's no food, where there's no water, where there's no shelter, where there's not the care that is needed. And so he's the one who deserves praise because he goes into that kind of place and he establishes a home for those who need it. That's hinted at in verse 4. It's made explicit in verse 5 where he's called, look at this, father of the fatherless and protector of widows, another vulnerable population, those two are often uh, put together in Scripture. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation where he lives. It says this, verse 6, underline this phrase, God settles the solitary in a home. That's the heart of God. He settles the solitary, the lonely, the without care in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched Land. Friends, God's heart is to prepare a home for the orphan. Secondly, Deuteronomy 10, God's heart is justice uh, for the orphan. God's heart is justice for the orphan. It says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. That's the reason why he's worthy of praise. It says this, underline this, verse 18, He executes justice. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God's heart is justice for the orphan. The third one that we're looking at today is God's heart is to provide practical 
care uh, for the orphan. Deuteronomy 14, verses 28 and 29. says, At the end of every three years you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up uh, within your towns. And the Levite, because he had no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled. That's, that's practical care right there. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. God's heart is to provide practical care. Next, and these two are related to one another. God's heart is to be a father to the orphan that is or was you. God's heart is to be a father to the orphan that is or was you. We've got two passages to look at here, Romans 8 and Ephesians 2. These are great passages. It says this, For you did not receive, receive, is an important word here. For you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received. In other words, we have all been orphans. You don't sit here today because of your own bootstraps being pulled up by you. You didn't achieve your status in life or spiritually with God. He gives it to you as a gift. It's called grace. You receive it. That's why it's used here twice in this passage. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption. As sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, you have the status of heir and son. It says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer in order that we may also be glorified. And then look at this, Ephesians 2. That fits with our tell the story thing of, of B.C. and A.D. Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time, the B.C. time, the before Christ time. Remember that you were at that time separated, cut off from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, citizenship in his kingdom, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, A.D., after his death in the year of our Lord, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God's heart is to be a father to the orphan uh, that is you. Listen, it's easy to go through life as if, uh, as if you tell the story of you being here because of you being wonderful. Listen, none of us is wonderful enough to be where we are materially, in practical terms, and spiritually, you're not that wonderful. <laughs> I'm not that wonderful. It's a lie to write the story of your life as if you are. The witness of Scripture is that you were dead in trespasses and sins. That way of telling the story about your life is a way that messes up the gospel, friends. You can't tell the story of who you really are now in Christ, unless you realize that you were a spiritual orphan, broken in relationship with God, in need of Him giving you this spirit of adoption that He talks about in Romans 8. Lastly, God's heart is to be a father to the orphan that is someone else. And this is extension of the fourth point. The fifth point is a practical extension of having been an orphan one's self. It says this in James 1.27. This is God's Father, God the Father being an or, uh, a father to the orphan that's somebody other than you. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit 
orphans and widows in their affliction and their, in their vulnerability and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Friends, in this series we've been uh, having our own folks uh, like Gregory and Rachel and in a second here the McCoys um, tell about the story of God's work in their lives. That, of course, is a story uh, of struggle and of pain. But it's also a story of God's provision and his care. Uh, today's stories are stories of families uh, who have taken on uh, the burden, the wonderful burden of letting their lives and their homes uh, be a place where God, uh, as it says in Psalm 68, settles the solitary. Settles the solitary in a home, a place where the people around them communicate that there's a God who loves them and wants to spend eternity with them. Friends, the gospel made practical, the gospel made practical is the story that our lives must be telling. Our plans were that we would have a family with two children, a boy and a girl. We had a perfect family. We had decided not to have any more children, um, but God's plan was different, and it was a plan of beauty from ashes. Hi, I'm Catherine McCoy. And I'm Jason McCoy. And we want to talk to you about our story um, in orphan care and adoption. I guess our story starts with me being very uncomfortable with the whole idea. Catherine uh, saw situations at school where she worked and would come home and talk about these children that had very little and in some cases had nothing. And had mentioned us becoming involved in foster care or something, some type of, of orphan care for quite some time. And I was just not in. Um, I thought we had our hands full with our own family and our own kids and our own lives and careers and didn't have time uh, I guess I just I was a little scared of it too two of our family members ended up needing temporary care and so we received a call for orphan care we received a call saying can you help and obviously we said yes and we became part of the foster care family network that we now um, know very well and so we took our foster care classes and agreed to help with two family members that stayed with us for over a year. And we received a call for our two little ones, two four-week-old babies, twins. I don't know. I was, I was always afraid that the kids would feel like they were secondary to our own children. Uh, they weren't as important or weren't as special. Um, and and, and I, I guess... If you had told me then that, that you could ever love a child that wasn't biologically yours in the same way you love your biological children, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, but it's absolutely true. You do. You fall in love with these guys. And so picking up our story from there, um, our twins are adopted. And they came to us at four weeks old as these little helpless babies. Um, and God's plan for them was that their birth parents would raise them. God's initial plan was a plan of 
um, some mission and a forgiveness for for everybody that they were involved in. And um, their story changed, and God had an alternate plan, and we were just blessed enough to be part of that. And so adoption for us is huge. Just the word adoption has changed in us. It's helped us to reconnect with God. It's helped us to see that we are unworthy, and yet he calls us his. Um, It's the personification of the gospel in my mind now. And when the Bible talks about us being adopted into God's family, that makes sense to me now in a way that it never did before. And to think about orphan care, we continue in orphan care. Um, our newest son came to us through orphan care. And again, we thought our family was content and happy and perfect. And what we have grown to learn is that God stretches us, thankfully, a little bit at a time. Um, and so he stretched us again and made us realize that there's room to love even more. Um, than what we thought we could handle, not by way of number of children, but by way of just how much love you can give. Um, And so God's good in that. God's good in letting us meet families and to know families that are like our own. Um, They've just not realized sometimes the potential love of God. And so we have participated in orphan care. We've continued to participate in orphan care. Um, to get to know those people, to love people who need to know their value, who have forgotten their value or have never been told their value, um, because we want to tell them their value. We want to say to the children that come to live in our homes that they're important and that they're loved and that they're not forgotten um, and they're not abandoned. They're not abandoned by God. Just to bring these kids into your house. And and you don't know you don't know what's you don't know. I mean, we get these phone calls and and there's a voice on the other end of the phone that, that we've never heard before saying, you know, we have this brother and sister. They're eight and seven years old and we need somewhere for them to go. And and they show up and you don't you don't know what to expect with these, these these kids, they come into your house and and they just act like they're at home. And we had no idea. We had no idea we had three more little babies out there looking for a permanent forever home with us. We had no idea we'd be a part of, of over a dozen children's lives in just a few years' time. It's, it's just amazing. I know our family, um, too, we've discussed several times if it's worth loving these kids over and over and over and investing. Um, and every time we've been able to conclude that it's so worth loving with the fear of losing and never knowing the outcomes of where these kids are and where their families are and um, if they've accepted the Lord or not. It's, it's so much better and it's so worth loving and losing than not loving them at all. I guess our story is God took a family that thought it was living the perfect life 
the perfect American dream with a Christian spin, serving in ministry, full-time jobs, son and daughter, right ages apart. I mean, we, we had all this plan. Um, <laughs> and God showed us that He's bigger than our plans. And that His plans are bigger than our wildest imaginations. And that true family is more than just the DNA you share. But it's sharing a common bond that is love. And that's what Christ showed us on the cross. made practical is the lives is the story our lives must be telling the gospel made practical quick math lesson for you before we end here in the u.s today there are approximately 300,000 churches in the u.s today and around 125,000 children are available for adoption in the united states today which is one kid for every two churches (laughs) one kid for every two churches in America was taken care of in a Christian home, it would revolutionize the foster care system in America. Many of you have gone on a similar journey journey of faith with foster care and adoption. Some of you have not. Um, Here at First Christian, there are about seven or eight families Um, currently involved in foster care adoption. There have been others uh, as well. Um, Something like 14 or 15 uh, kids currently who have been adopted uh, through folks at First Christian, which is the gospel being made practical in the lives of his people. (laughs) So the question is, what is your part in that? What is your part in the move of God to care for the most vulnerable He's not calling everybody to adopt. He's not calling everybody to foster care by any stretch. Uh, But it's a question to ask, how does my life tell the story of a God who wants to make his love practical? Because the gospel kept theoretical friends ain't going to do anything for anybody's life. You won't grow to be who he made you to be if you keep the gospel theoretical in your life, if you keep it to yourself, if you hoard it for you, that's not the cross. We're called to make the love of God real in our lives, with our resources, through our family, with our marriage, through our grandparenting, whatever it looks like when we do that, it's the heart of God made real in the lives of His people. That's what a witness from the church, from the people of God looks like. Friends, we're gathered today to, uh, to worship a God whose heart is for the good of His children. We've sung about a good Father who loves us and cares for us 
and tells us that we are His own. May we be people whose lives also communicate that to others, just as He has done for us. Let's pray, friends.